And the answer is... Seems like um, when it comes to Zechariah, this may be the only shot I'm ever going to have at preaching a sermon on Zechariah. Our goal here is to preach the entire Bible. We have preached uh, many other books of the Bible in our short history as a church, verse by verse, word by word. I, I remember our sermon series on James. I remember our sermon series on Proverbs, Mark, 41 sermons in Mark, a year and a half in the book of John, Titus, Acts, Philippians, other books of the Bible, when we preach through them, we take more of an overview. We kind of a flyover perspective of that book and, and try to give you a feeling for what that book means, why God wanted it in the Holy Scriptures. How does it speak to us today? So sometimes we, we look at that book and it's more of a, we're going to get the big picture of that book. We've done that with Genesis, we've done that with Psalms, we've done that with Ephesians, we've done that with Colossians, and today, as the Lord wills, that's the same approach that we will take with Zechariah. And I hope that you'll pray for us as we preach. You, you are praying for us as we preach, right? Not just now, although you may be thinking, uh-oh, if he's asking for prayer, we better pray. But during the week as well. Every Sunday morning I get a text from Patrick. It's saying, uh, if, if I'm preaching or if I'm teaching or whatever, I get, I get that from Patrick. And he says, I'm praying for you today. And that means so much because it is a tremendous responsibility. And might I say, burden. To preach the word. To know what's at stake. That lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. So we feel the burden to be faithful to the Lord and His word. So I humbly ask that you would pray for us. But then again, maybe Zechariah is not that much pressure, right? I mean, after all, he's a minor prophet, right? Marketing not too good there when he... When Zechariah realized he was going to be included in the minor prophets, he must have been saying, he's not a major prophet, you know, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But on the other hand, Zechariah is not like Obadiah. Obadiah only got one chapter, right, Ken? Or Haggai. Haggai got two chapters. Zechariah has 14 chapters. How do you preach a message on a 14-chapter book? Well, i got some good news and some bad news. I want you to answer this question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but I want you to answer this question truthfully. What do you know about Zechariah? Especially if you weren't in Sunday school this morning. Coming into this message, what do you know about Zechariah? Anything? Well, i got to tell you, until I started preparing for this message, I, I don't think I could have told you one thing. I might have remembered that he was a minor prophet, Sam. I might have remembered that. I might have remembered that he's near the end of the Old Testament. But that is about it. So the bar is really low. So if you, if you come out of here with anything, that's better than what you came in here with. 
What should I know and remember about Zechariah? That's the first question for today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, your ways are above our ways. I'm with David when I say my eyes are not lifted up. My heart is not haughty. I do not trouble myself with things that are above my understanding. And Zechariah sometimes in my study has been beyond my understanding. But Lord, I believe that you have a word for us today and that you will speak to us today. So we humbly ask, Lord, that you would do just that, that you would speak to us today through your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And when you have a 14-chapter book, you also have uh, the possibility that you're going to get more than one sermon. And uh, that, that could happen today, but... Uh, uh, I will keep it moving. Uh, we were in Sunday school today, Ken, and you're doing a great job. And I remembered, oh, there was another sermon I was going to preach about Zechariah. How Zechariah is like Revelation. And my major points were, well, Revelation's at the end of the Old Te- New Testament, and Zechariah is pretty close to the end of the Old Testament. Lots of visions, lots of visions in, in both books. And uh, Jesus is the center point of both books, and they both concentrate on the revelation of Jesus. Of course, Revelation, the book of Revelation in the New Testament, that's the name of the book. It's the revelation. Revelation of what? The end times? Yes, but more importantly, the revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Zechariah concentrates on Jesus as well. I see four visions in Zechariah. Here they are. God sure does love visions. That's the first vision. Second vision. God sure does love Jerusalem. Third vision. God sure does love his people. And in the fourth vision, God sure does love his son. I have in my hands here a a bag of Cracker Jacks. You know the Cracker Jacks don't come in boxes anymore? Don't know that. I was going to try to open it that way, but I don't think that's going to work. I better go this way. Oh yeah, that works. Good. Whew. I'm on a diet. So, Rhonda, I'm counting the calories. Mm. That's good. That's good. I wish Ken Hoxett were in here. He's on security. Oh, I got a prize. That's good. Good. There's a lot of popcorn in here, but you know the thing about Cracker Jacks is you got to go digging for those those peanuts, those red peanuts, because after you've had this sweet popcorn, you you just need you need those peanuts. Well, I'll tell you right now, Zachariah is not like Cracker Jacks, because when you go looking for visions. You don't have to go digging for the visions of Zechariah because they are all over the place. You open the book and you will see visions everywhere. Well, there's the vision of the man in the myrtle tree standing in front of chestnut horses, white horses, brown horses. And if that weren't enough of a vision, we're going to throw the angel of the Lord there too. He's there among the myrtle trees. How descriptive, how beautiful. There's the vision of the four horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. There's the vision of the four craftsmen that God sent to cut down those horns 
There's the vision of the surveyor who takes the measuring line and measures Jerusalem. He goes through Jerusalem and he measures Jerusalem. Why? Because God loves Jerusalem and he has plans for Jerusalem and he wants those plans to be right. There's the vision of the high priest, Joshua. Normally high priests are well attired in beautiful robes, but not not Joshua. Joshua in his clothing symbolizes what has happened to Israel, what has happened to Judah, what has happened to Jerusalem. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's described as someone who looks like he was a burning stick snatched from the fire, dressed in filthy clothes. But God gives him a new wardrobe, a wardrobe of white. There's the vision of the branch. There's the vision of the stone with seven eyes. There's the vision of a solid gold lampstand with a bowl on the top, seven lamps, seven spouts, and two olive trees. There's the vision of a flying scroll, 30 feet wide, 15 feet tall. There's a vision of a woman in a basket whose name is Wickedness, who is carried away by two women who have wings like storks. There's a vision of four chariots that come out from between two bronze mountains The horses are chestnut, black, white, and dappled. Finally, there's the vision of the day of the Lord. A desperate day of battle. When the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives and he will split that mountain in two. Half of the mountain will go one way. Half of the other mountain will go the other way. And the people of God will stream through that valley in a desperate attempt to find relief. And the relief will come when the Lord himself stands on that mountain and rescues them. And then living water will flow from Jerusalem. And there will be a new river that will flow from Jerusalem. Half of it will go to the Mediterranean Sea. The other half will go to the sea on the east. God loves visions. And Zechariah, there are more visions in Zechariah than there are peanuts and Cracker Jacks. You open the book, you're seeing visions. I want you to look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. This will be our first focal passage. We're going to look at one vision in particular. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me from as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven sprouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? Don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, no. No, my Lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace. Grace to it. I see five principles in the vision of the gold lampstand. You've got to understand the context in which this message comes to Zerubbabel. I love what Patrick said when he preached to us on Ezra. He said, Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. 
Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, but Ezra rebuilt the people. Zerubbabel's responsibility was to build the temple, and he had started building the temple. And this was no easy task, because there were people around the people of God who did not want the temple rebuilt. And so they had started, but they had not finished. The work had paused. And God sends a word to his leader, Zerubbabel, and he does it through his prophet Zechariah, and he says, This is the word of the Lord, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. You see, there was a mountain of debris where the temple used to be. When the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, this was the third campaign in about 15 years where they had come in and partially won, but had not destroyed the city. And in 586 B.C., they came back, and this time, they brought the hammer. They said, we are going to destroy everything. And they did. And when they were done, they heaped up all the rubbish where the temple had been. You, you see the evil in that, right? The one place that the earth had known as the presence of the Lord, where the Lord visited with His people, that holy place, that beautiful place, known as one of the seven great wonders of the world. The Babylonians said, okay, you're going to mess with us? We'll show you what we'll do. We'll take your temple and we'll turn it into a pile of trash. And so when Zerubbabel realized that he had the responsibility of building the temple, he knew that that mountain of debris had to be removed. And I see five principles here. Without God, the people of God can be easily overwhelmed. If you're looking at the mountain of debris, if you're looking at whatever is holding you back from doing the Lord's will, it's easy for us as the people of God to be overwhelmed. The second principle I see here is that without God, there is a mountain of debris that will stand in our way. I love what the scriptures say. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. Now, Ron and I have had the opportunity to stand on the Temple Mount where the temple was built. And it's flat. It's cleared. Zerubbabel did his job. But at the time, when the people were about to rebuild the temple, it looked like that mountain would never be moved. But God's promise to his leader and to his people was, before you, that mountain will become a plain. So with God, clearing and construction becomes possible. And how does it become possible? Does it come, become possible by our own strength, by our own ingenuity? We'll figure this out. No. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of Army. I woke this morning and I believe the Lord said, hey, you need to tell them about Elijah. You remember Elijah? And how he confronted the, the prophets of Baal. He was outnumbered 450 to 1. The people of Israel had turned away from God. Elijah felt like he was the only one left. And he confront, it's a major confrontation between him and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he faced them down. And God answered in a mighty way. And God won a great victory that day. And to top things off, God told Elijah, 
He said, tell Ahab that this drought that he's been suffering with for three years, I'm going to lift that drought. So not only did he see the Lord answer in a mighty way, not only were the prophets of Baal slain that day, but the drought that had been troubling Israel for three years was lifted. And Elijah predicted it, told the king, hey, you better head back to your palace because you're about to get wet. And that happened. And then Jezebel sent him a little note. And she said, as surely as you live, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. So Elijah takes off running. He runs for the wilderness. And he's down. He's had the mountaintop experience, but now he's suffering. He's suffering greatly. And the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here? And he says, I've been jealous for you, Lord. I've been zealous for you, Lord. I have, I have done everything that I know to do. And still your people will not turn to you. He was depressed. And so he moved on to another location. He moved from the wilderness to a cave. And it was while he was in the cave that a tremendous tornado came. And the scriptures say that the tornado swept through that area and it actually tore some of the cliffs down. And if that wasn't enough, then there was an earthquake that God sent. And if that wasn't enough, then he sent a fire. But God was not in the whirlwind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. God was in a still, small voice. You see, with God... Big things like earthquakes and fires and tornadoes. Big things can become small. That mountain of debris that's in our way, that is stopping us from doing what the Lord has called us to do, that can become a plane. That can become small. With God, big things can become small. And small things can become big. For Elijah, the small thing was the still, small voice of God who encouraged him to go back and do the work that he'd been assigned to do. Reminds me of that song, Little is Much When God is in It. And the fifth principle I see here is with God, unfinished tasks can be finished. It wasn't too long ago that this church had no land, no buildings, no place from which to base our activities to reach this neighborhood for Jesus Christ. No parking lot. But with God, unfinished tasks can be finished. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you, for who despises the day of small things? This is a small church. It used to be smaller. In the grand scheme of things, this is no mega church. In the grand scheme of things, a parking lot is nothing. This property is nothing. But in the hands of God, this offering can be used to reach, his pe reach these neighbors and bring them to Him. God sure does love visions. Zerubbabel is full of visions. There's more visions in Zerubbabel then there are peanuts and Cracker Jacks. 
Vision 2. God sure does love Jerusalem. By my count, well, I'll tell you this. I, I've been reading Zechariah now for a while in preparation for this message. And I, I said, I wonder how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in Zechariah. So I googled it and I couldn't find it. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to have to count. So last night I sat down and I counted them. And by my count, and I, I may be off a little bit, but by my count, I count Jerusalem is mentioned 42 times in the book of Zechariah. Here's one of those fascinating passages. It's in Zechariah chapter 1. Follow along verses 14 through 16. This is just one of the 42. So the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim, the Lord of armies says, I'm extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. For I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And a measuring line will be stretched over all of Jerusalem. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says. My city will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You see, things were so bad in Jerusalem that it was beyond the realm of, of even thought that Jerusalem would return to a point of prosperity. There were still people who were living at this time who could remember what Jerusalem was before it fell, before the Babylonians came and wrecked their devastation and their havoc. It's just so far out of the realm of possibility, they're thinking it's not even possible. But God says, I will restore Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Ron and I have had the opportunity to stand within the walls of Jerusalem twice now. And I was telling Brad and Heather yesterday, I said, you know, when you, when you get to Jerusalem and you see Jerusalem, it's, it's not really what you thought it would be. It's hard to imagine what the city of God, well, we've seen pictures and, and you know a little bit of what it looks like, but the scope and the way it's spread out on those mountains, it's just, it's amazing to behold. It's so beautiful, so historic, so fought over. Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times, captured or recaptured 44 times, completely destroyed at least twice. When you go to Jerusalem and someone tells you, this is where such and such happened, kind of take that with a grain of salt. Because you're standing on thousands of years of accumulated debris. And when some of the times that, it's, that it was captured and destroyed, it was leveled. So beautiful, so historic, so fought over, great turmoil. And Jerusalem's time of turmoil is not over. There will be more, there will be worse. God says, don't lose hope. The time is coming when Jerusalem will be filled with children and with old men who lean on canes. And the Lord himself will build a wall of fire around it. Zechariah tells me that God loves visions. He also tells me that God loves Jerusalem because the Lord himself will return to Jerusalem and save it. Third vision, God sure does love his people. 
God loves visions, God loves Jerusalem, but God loves his people. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is how the book starts. This is how the prophecy starts. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Idu. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies say. And I want you to hear this because this is such a beautiful promise. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. God loves his people. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 through 9 says this, in the whole land, this is the Lord's declaration, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. And I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. Another beautiful promise. I will say, you ready for this? They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. You remember last week when we looked at Haggai and God was talking about the people? He said, these people. Oh, that was so convicting, so hurtful. Can you imagine being at a point in time where the Lord didn't even claim you as his people? But God loves his people. And in this case, he says, return to me, and I'll return to you. And I'm going to test you. It's not going to be easy. We're not done. There's going to be some more pain. There's going to be some more suffering. But through that, God will say, they are my people. And we will say, and you are our God. God loves vision. God loves Jerusalem. God loves his people. You know, the fourth vision that I see is that God loves his son. Why read and savor Zechariah? Because Zechariah is absolutely full of Jesus Christ. I grew up in a church that um, was really, really good when it came to the letters of Paul. And how we were to live our life in community as believers. And what our responsibilities were. I I grew up in a church that knew Paul forwards and backwards. Not too many messages from the Gospels. And I guess this is going to sound strange to you, perhaps. But I would say that the first time I really got to know Jesus is when we went through Mark together. Those 41 messages in Mark studying the word reading the word praying over the word bringing the word and it was when I read that short little gospel it's only 16 chapters you can read it in one setting very easily that I fell in love with Jesus like never before and as we neared the end of the book the climax of the story and I began to remember oh I know what's coming I was overcome with emotion because I was thinking, oh, don't do this to Jesus. I love him so much. Please don't do this to my Savior. (laughs) And for those of you who are in that sermon, you know it's kind of uncomfortable because I kind of lost it. But then I think the next sermon was on Barabbas. 
And as I was preaching on Barabbas, so easy to look down on Barabbas. Criminal, murderer, revolutionary, the one who went scot-free when Jesus paid the price. So easy to disdain Barabbas. It was when I was preaching through Barabbas that I realized, hey, I'm Barabbas. I'm the one who should have died. I'm the one who should have paid the price. Jesus took my place. And then I cried out, yes, yes, Jesus, please do it. I'm in desperate need of salvation. I know the condition of my sinful heart. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and to pay the price to die in your place. It was the Father's will. And so he did. He died in our place. He died. He was buried. But on the third day. Yes. Raised from the dead. Seal of God's approval on him. And Zechariah is so much Jesus. It is in Zechariah that we read that Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is the good shepherd struck down for his sheep. It's in Zechariah that we learn that the king of kings, who could have entered Jerusalem on a white horse as a victorious conquering general, comes in humbly. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God loves Jesus. It's in Zechariah that we learn that the good shepherd will be so terribly undervalued and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver that are then cast into the potter's field. Prophecies made, prophecies fulfilled. The price of a slave. It is in Zechariah that we learn that eventually God's people will recognize the Messiah. And oh, how I long for this day. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, God says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Do you realize that at some point in time, the Jewish people will recognize that the one whom they pierced, they will look on him and they will say, He is the Messiah. God loves His Son and He loves you so much that He sent His Son to earth to be pierced for you. Who loves you? Who loves you enough to give His life for you? And the answer is... The answer is... Jesus. So I have a question for you. Do you love him enough to trust him? Do you love him enough to live for him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Zechariah. A hard book, a difficult book, an obscure book, a book not well known, but a book of 
important prophecies that laid the groundwork for what was going to happen, not just in the rebuilding of the temple, but in the coming of the true temple of God, where God resides, the temple, the body of Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and offered himself. He came humbly, born in a manger, entered his capital city on the foal of a donkey, and then paid the price so that we could be right with you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now. And that the, if there are those here, Lord, who have not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. If there are those of us here, Lord, who have trusted you as Savior, but we just were not living for you, I pray that today will be a day of rededication. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus.